And good Sunday morning. Welcome to the latest edition of Sharing the Victory, a program sponsored by the West Virginia University chapter of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And with us, as usual, on this Sunday morning is WVU FCA Campus Director Kirby Myers. Well, good morning. Happy New Year to you. Thank you, Kyle. Thank you for the opportunity to join you again today in this new year for the first time. And um, I can guarantee you, as you listen today, this will be the best podcast you have heard from WVU FCA in 2023, but at the same time, it will always be the worst podcast you've heard so far in 2023. I hope that's a short reign until I speak again, but uh, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 26. You know, we just celebrated Christmas and the joy of thinking about the birth of Christ and Jesus coming to earth But I want to turn our attention today to looking at why Jesus came. Why did he come to earth? And it's so important for us to remember that Jesus was born that he might die. And so we're going to look at a passage today uh, during the Passion Week of Christ, during the final week of Jesus on the earth, just before he goes to the cross, his prayer in the garden. So Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46 And this title of this sermon is Grief in Gethsemane. So read along with me, beginning in verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Well, when you read through the Bible, there are some great military battles on the pages of sacred scripture. Uh, Probably the one that we think about the most would be the battle between David and Goliath, where a young shepherd boy defeats a giant who is over nine feet tall with only a sling and a stone. Another one would be found in the book of Judges, Gideon and his 300 men and their victory over the Midianites and the Amalekites, who were as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number. But they blew the trumpets, and not one of Gideon's men were lost. Or the Battle of Jericho. I got to go to Jericho when I went to Israel in 2020, where Joshua and his men marched around the city of Jericho seven times, and The people shouted, and the priests blew their trumpets, and the walls came tumbling down. 
But the greatest battle in all of Scripture was fought and won in a garden. Without swords, without spears, without slings and stones, by a man who got down on his knees and prostrated himself before the Lord and prayed, submitting his life to the will of the Father. And that man was the Lord Jesus Christ, who we just read about here in Matthew 26. In the verses that precede our text for today, we see there a focus on the divinity of Christ, the fact that Jesus is God. Jesus made five predictions related to his arrest, his death, and his resurrection. And they were more than just predictions, they were prophecies. Prophecies, all of which came true, just as he said. He was able to do this because he had perfect knowledge, as we looked at in the end of John chapter 2 just a few weeks ago. He was omniscient. He was God. But today we are going to look at the humanity of Christ, and we will watch him struggle in the garden as he battles with what is about to take place. And so today we're going to look at three displays of the humanity of Christ. We will see the incredible sorrow of Christ. We will see the intense supplication of Christ. And finally, we will see the immaculate strength of Christ. So first of all, the first display of the humanity of Christ is the incredible sorrow of Christ. And that is found in verses 36 to 38. Let me read those verses again for us today. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. Just a little background and some review here. This historical event that takes place during the last week of Jesus on the earth is also found in Mark chapter 14, verses 32 to 42, and in Luke chapter 20, verses 40 to 46. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptic gospels. They are very similar to one another, yet I believe that they are independently written and unique from one another. In the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew is one of the twelve disciples of Jesus. He is writing primarily to a Jewish audience, and Matthew presents Jesus as king, as the Messiah, as the fulfillment of all those Old Testament scriptures that now were being fulfilled. In fact, throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew will present something and then say, and this was done in order to fulfill the prophecy. He is wanting to show his readers and primarily the Jews, that Jesus is the fulfillment of those Old Testament scriptures. He is the Messiah. He is the King. The Gospel of Mark, the shortest of the four Gospels, presents Jesus as servant. In that, we see that Jesus saying himself, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. Luke, 24 chapters, is the lengthiest of the gospel even though Ma- of the gospels even though Matthew has 28 chapters if you look at the length uh, Luke is the longest of the four gospels and there we see Jesus presented as the son of man an emphasis on his humanity but also 
uh, the Son of Man being a term for divinity. Jesus has just instituted the Lord's Supper with his disciples. And we read that after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Judas is now gone. He has gone to the chief priests and the elders with information on Jesus' whereabouts. So Jesus and the remaining 11 disciples come to a garden. And in verse 36, we see this as a place called Gethsemane. Literally, that means oil press, presumably meaning that there were olive trees growing there, and there are. I saw them in Israel in March of 2020, and they are here, they are on the Mount of Olives. In John 18.1, John locates this garden just across the Kidron Valley from Jerusalem. This was a familiar meeting place for Jesus and his disciples. In John chapter 18, verse 2, that gives us the details of Jesus' arrest, it says, Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Jesus has not come to the garden to engage in some light conversation. He was not there to talk about the, the, the departure of Judas, nor was he there with his chosen ones to appoint a new treasurer now that Judas was gone. Jesus is not with them, as he had been before, to teach them some important theological truths. This is Jesus' last night of freedom before his death. He is facing rejection by the Father, and he is about to endure an agonizing death. And so in verse 36, we see that Jesus instructs his disciples to sit there, or sit where they were, while he goes away from them to pray. Now in verse 37, we see that Jesus does not separate himself from all of his disciples, only from eight of them. And he takes with him Peter, James, and John. Matthew here refers to the latter two as the sons of Zebedee, and we know this to be James and his brother John. This is the third time in Scripture that we see Jesus getting alone with these three men. We see it in Matthew 17, the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus goes up on the mountain and Moses and Elijah appear, and these are the three men that are with him as they see him in his, all of his glory. Uh, we also see this in Luke chapter 8, where Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. Everyone else stays outside, but Jesus takes with him into the room Peter, James, and John. And now we see Jesus with Peter, James, and John in the Garden of Gethsemane. I think this, too, is an indication of his humanity. Jesus does not want to be alone. He wants his closest friends to be near to him as he contemplates and agonizes over what he is about to face. I want you to look carefully here in verse 37. It says, He began to be grieved and distressed. The New King James translates this sorrowful and deeply distressed. The first word here that is translated sorrowful comes from the Greek verb lupeo, and it means to be grieved, to be pained, distressed, sorrowful. The second word that is often translated distressed comes from the Greek word adamoneo, meaning to be depressed or dejected, full of anguish or sorrow. Two similar verbs here, closely related, 
and Matthew uses them both to show his readers what Christ was experiencing in the garden. The Son of God was grieved. The Messiah was distressed. The Savior was full of anguish and sorrow. And that is exactly what he tells his three friends in verse 38. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. Now, I don't know about you, but I love The Passion of the Christ that was directed by Mel Gibson. Um, I would say that I own it on DVD, but young people may not even know what that means. But I do own it on DVD, and I try to watch it every Good Friday because I want to remember, as Mel Gibson tried to bring out in that movie, I want to remember the intense physical suffering that Jesus endured for my sins by being crucified, by being nailed to a cross. But friends, the agony and the grief that Jesus was experiencing late Thursday night of the Passion Week, I don't think came from his dread of physical pain or from the prospect that he was about to be deserted by his closest friends or that the leader of the Twelve, Peter, would soon deny him three times. Jesus Christ was about to become the sin of the world. He was about to be rejected and forsaken by his Father, and he was about to face the awful, terrible wrath of a holy God. And it was this that caused him deep anguish and sorrow. And in that sorrow, he calls out to the three, his closest companions. Verse 38, saying, Remain here and keep watch with me. Jesus here appeals to them to share with him in this difficult hour. Mark records Jesus saying, Remain here and keep watch. Matthew records him saying, Remain here and keep watch with me. Here Jesus doesn't even ask them to pray. He simply wants them to stay awake as he goes away to pray. Because Jesus was going to go and pray a prayer that only he could pray. And so in verse 39 we read that he went a little beyond them. Jesus knew that he could be encouraged by the support of his closest followers, being close in proximity to him. And so here again, we see the humanity of Jesus Christ. We see the sorrow over what lied ahead, and we see the desire for companionship in his darkest hour. Jesus experienced great sorrow. May we never overlook this. And some of you may be experiencing some great sorrow and anguish even now, even today, and, in, and you will in 2023. Jesus said, in this world, you have tribulation. He doesn't say you might have tribulation or there's a good chance you will have tribulation. He says, you have tribulation. This world is full of troubles. And so what are you going to do with that sorrow? What are you going to do with that grief? Well, what did Jesus do? Well, that leads us to the second manifestation of his humanity, and that is the intense supplication of Christ. The intense supplication of Christ. Verse 39, And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. 
So Jesus went a little beyond where Peter, James, and John were seated and began to pray. Luke tells us in his gospel that in Luke 22, verse 41, that he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray. Matthew tells us even more about his posture. In verse 39, it says, And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed. This indicates prostration, the adoption of the lowliest position of all. Now, I think it's uh, interesting to note here that we often read in the Gospels of Jesus going off to pray by himself, but this is the only time in the Gospels that we see Jesus doing this, falling on his face, prostrating himself before the Father. And I think this is yet another indication of the great grief and the overwhelming anguish that he was feeling. Another thing to note here, this is the only time in all of the Gospels found only here in Matthew that Jesus addresses God in prayer as my Father. Now, Jesus did this numerous times while teaching, but never in recorded prayer to his Father. Even though Jesus knew he would soon be forsaken by his Father, during this time of great sorrow and deep anguish, he knew God the Father, his Father, would be near. Look at the next four words that follow in verse 39, if it is possible. This little phrase precedes the substance of the prayer and makes it clear that Jesus was not pressing for anything that was against the will of the Father. And friend, it is so important to understand here that Jesus was not wrestling with God's will, nor was he resisting God's will. As the perfect Lamb of God, the one who knew no sin, he was beginning to feel the awful burden of sin that would be placed upon his back, that he would bear in his body and take to a horrible and cruel cross. And his holy, perfect soul was repelled by it. Leon Morris, in his great commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, says this, The question at issue was not whether Jesus should do the Father's will, but whether that necessarily included the way of the cross. The kind of death he faced was the kind of ordeal from which human desire naturally shrinks. Thus we discern here the natural human desire to avoid it. But we discern also Jesus' firm determination that the Father's will be done. So he, pray, so he prays for the avoidance of the death he faced, but only if that accorded with a divine plan. He prays in verse 39, Let this cup pass from me. But in the same sentence he says, Yet not as I will, but as you will. The translation would go like this, Father, if there is any other way you can redeem fallen humanity besides a cross, besides me becoming the sin of the world, besides me being forsaken, besides me facing the fierce and terrible wrath of a holy God, then let this cup pass from me. In other words, he is saying, if there is any other way, Father, I'll take it. If there is a plan B that we did not discuss before the foundation of the earth, I'm interested. 
The death that Jesus was facing was a horrible death. It was a unique death. Yes, others had died by crucifixion, but no other person in human history had died facing the unrestrained wrath of a holy God. So Jesus prayed, if it were possible, that it might be avoided. Jesus prayed, let this cup pass from me. Well, why cup? Well, in the Old Testament, the cup was a symbol of divine wrath against sin. And that's exactly the meaning here. Jesus was about to face the wrath of God for taking on our sins and bearing them in his body. But look at the final petition here in verse 39. He says, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus here rests in the will of God. Leon Morris again says, Jesus is not seeking to impose his will on the Father, but to accept the will of the Father. I think that's important to hear again. Jesus is not seeking to impose his will on the Father, but to accept the will of the Father. Jesus prayed three different times, your will be done. And that leads us to a question, should I pray your will be done? Is that something that I should include when I am petitioning the Father, when I am presenting my request to God as we are commanded to do in Philippians chapter 4? Is this to be a practice for today, for all of us who believe in Jesus Christ? Well, not according to Benny Hinn. I don't know if you know who Benny Hinn is. He's very popular in the 80s and 90s on TBN, a self-proclaimed healer, uh, has had a lot of television time. But he says this, and I'm reading this in error. He is saying this in error, in my opinion. Never, ever, ever go to the Lord and say, if it be thy will. Don't allow such faith-destroying words to be spoken from your mouth. When you pray, if it be your will, Lord, faith will be destroyed. Doubt will billow up and flood your being. Be on guard against words like this, which will rob you of your faith and drag you down in despair. That's from his book, Rise and Be Healed, Benny Hinn. But when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, in Matthew chapter 6, in the Lord's Prayer, he said in verses 9 and 10, Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote in his epistle in James chapter 4, verses 13 to 15, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Friends, I want you to know this morning, there is nothing wrong and nothing weak about praying, if it be your will. This is how Jesus prayed, and this is how Jesus commanded his disciples to pray, and this is how you and I are to pray. When we pray, thy will be done, your will be done, we are saying, Lord, I acknowledge your sovereignty in the world, and I submit myself to it. When we pray, your will be done, we are also asking that God would give us a desire 
to do his will. Well, back to the prayer of Jesus here. There was nothing weak about him praying, your will be done. Look at what Luke says about his prayer here. Let me just quote this verse for, for you. In Luke 22, verse 44, and it says, And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Wow. In verse 40, we see that Jesus gets up from the ground off of his face. He had heard his disciples snoring. And in verse 40, it says, And he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. Luke tells us that Jesus found them sleeping from sorrow. It's the same word we see translated sorrow in verse 37, the Greek word lupe. Here it is found as a noun. The disciples were distressed too. They have heard some hard sayings from Jesus on this day. Jesus has told them that one of his own would betray him this very night and has said it would have been good if this man had never been born. Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper with them, and he tells them that he will not drink this cup with them again until the establishment of the kingdom. He tells them that they will all fall away from him this night. He prophesies that they will all scatter. He again predicts his death and resurrection, and he tells Peter that before a rooster crows, Peter will deny him three times. And now, the disciples see Jesus as they have never seen him before. The grief was obvious, the anguish was unmistakable, and the distress was unveiled for all of them to see. The disciples were sleeping, but not because they were lazy, not because they were being insensitive to their Savior, but because they too were overcome with sorrow. The great emotional strain was weighing heavily on the disciples as well. We can assume here and infer that all three of the disciples were sleeping, Peter, James, and John. That seems to be clear from the grammar. Matthew tells us that he, being Jesus, found them sleeping, plural. Yet Jesus addresses only Peter. Verse 40, and said to Peter this very question. And so it leads to another question. Why does he address only Peter? <laughs> Poor guy. I mean, James and John were sleeping too. But perhaps that is because of what Peter had said to him earlier. If you drop or jump up to verses 31 to 35, then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing too. We're going to have to close right there and, and continue with this next week as we continue looking at uh, the intense supplication of Christ, and then we move into the immaculate strength of Christ. Amazing passage as we think, again, why Jesus came to earth. He was born to die that we might live, and this is where the greatest battle was ever won. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this 
great passage of scripture, this great battle where Jesus got on his knees and prostrated himself before the Father, Lord, as he went and submitted to the will of the Father, that Jesus would go to the cross, that he would be beaten and mocked and scourged and crucified so that we might have eternal life. God, we are so grateful for the coming of Christ, for the perfect life of Christ, for the obedience of Christ, and for the voluntary sacrifice of Jesus going to the cross and and bearing our sins in his body on the tree that we might be forgiven and have everlasting life. Thank you for this passage. And as we continue to look at it next time together, may you use this to make us more like you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Kirby. To learn more about the WVU-FCA, you can go to their website, wvufca.org. Find more about the staff, listen to previous podcasts of shows, and give financially as well. This is Sharing the Victory on this Sunday morning, a program sponsored by the WVU-FCA. And you're listening to Sunday Morning, 104.5 FM, 1440 AM, WAJR.